History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. Heads were uncovered and rosaries and crucifixes came out. Some of the pilgrims had come great distances, doing the journey in stages, and must have suffered torture in the process. The story of the Templemore miracles, the supernatural manifestations accompanied by cures that attracted thousands of pilgrims to the Tipperary town in 1920. Also, to all those who have no voice or whose voice is weak, I say, take heart, there is hope. Look what you did in this election. 30 years on, we look back at Mary Robinson's historic presidential campaign in 1990. Plus, like most parts of women's lives, it doesn't always get recorded in the newspapers or in the history books. Living memory of the early stages of women's football is at risk. The history of women's soccer in Ireland and the seminal match 50 years ago today that paved the way for competitive women's internationals. But to begin this evening, despite the fact we're sequestered in our homes with devices like smartphones in one sense at least, we still live in a world of non-stop connection. We're going back now to the early 1970s when an idea for a new communications technology, one that would revolutionise our personal and working lives, became a reality. Colin Flynn has been speaking to Marty Cooper, the man who invented the mobile phone. How many of you just tried to answer your phone, or even looked at your phone, or had that instinctive reaction when you heard that sound? It's hard to imagine a world without the sound of a mobile phone ringing. It's become part of the soundtrack to our lives. But there was a time when this wasn't the case, and we don't have to go back far to hear it. A long, long time ago I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. It was 1972, and America was going through a transformative time. Marginalized communities were fighting for their rights, people were protesting the war in Vietnam, Nixon was president, and Don McLean's American Pie became the anthem to an entire generation. Did you write the book of It was also a time of great technological achievements and a new invention was on the horizon that would go on to change the world. Wait for a dial tone, which I hope you'll be able to hear too. There it is. And the only thing I can say is, what will they think of next? What you just heard was the dial tone of the first ever mobile phone in the world. And the man who invented it is Martin Cooper. Yeah, my name is Martin Cooper. I live in Del Mar, California. By the way, what do, you, what do your colleagues in Ireland call the cell phone? They call it a mobile phone. Yeah, mobile. Today, Marty Cooper is known as the father of the cell phone. And back in 1972, he was working as an engineer in Chicago for a company called Motorola. And while I was working for Motorola, Motorola at that time was a company that built two-way radios. I don't know what you call them in uh, Ireland. Would it be like walkie-talkies? Walk, yeah, whatever the policemen use. Yeah, walkie-talkies. We uh, were uh, the dominant player. We made most of them actually in the world. Motorola produced radios for police and fire departments all over the world. 
But apart from that, they weren't a very big player in the telecommunications industry in the US. The market was dominated by one giant called AT&T. AT&T, biggest company in the world. AT&T was not only the biggest company in the phone industry, it was also the largest company in the world with a turnover of $22 billion. They ran the phone network in the US, which was the traditional wired landline system. But they had introduced a new invention after World War II, which was called the car phone. New York, calling all cars for a preview of tomorrow. The tiny radio transmitter sends your voice out over the airwaves to the nearest central station, where regular telephone operators can connect you with any telephone on land or sea. AT&T, the biggest company in the world, their idea at the time was in-car phones. That's exactly right. That To them, that was communications, because, you know, they had been building... Uh, wired telephones and having somebody sitting in the car was a big improvement. Next to the driver was a phone connected to the dashboard with a cord and in the car boot was a large battery and antenna which would link to the cell tower. And to us it was uh, ridiculous. We'd been uh, been leashed to the wall and to our desk by that wire for over a hundred years and now they want to leash us to our car. Didn't make any sense to us. And that's when Marty had an idea for a handheld mobile phone. We are going to have cellular communications. And what that means is everybody's going to be able to talk to everybody else. And Marty, how did it occur to you that the future was in mobile telephone technology, that people no longer wanted to be tied to their phone with a cord, that they wanted to be free? That's a superb question, Colin. All we have to do is watch our customers. Because our, our customers were policemen. The superintendent of police in Chicago came to us and said, why are my police officers stuck in their cars when the people are on the streets? So we observed that. We observed that they were set free. They had the freedom to be everywhere. So we knew that people were mobile, that that's the way it had to be. Marty went with his idea to his boss at Motorola, who was reluctant to go head-to-head with such a big player like AT&T. But... Marty convinced him, and the race for the future of the telephone was on. Motorola had promised the world they would demonstrate a working cell phone in just 90 days, and Marty and his small team of engineers worked around the clock. What they achieved at Calm was miraculous. They took the performance of a a piece of electronic equipment that weighed uh, somewhere around 30 pounds. We had to take that equipment and shrink it down to uh, something that you could hold in your hand. And they had 90 days to do that because we had arranged to have a demonstration Uh, In New York, in April of 1973, we had to meet that schedule. Marty's rival at AT AT&T was a man called Joe Ingall, who had heard of Marty's little idea, but didn't pay that much attention. This was David and Goliath, and they never thought someone like Marty Cooper or Motorola could achieve what they were promising. 
And Marty, did you ever doubt yourself in the development of the first mobile phone? Did you ever think, oh, maybe this is sci-fi? Maybe this isn't something that people will want, their own mobile phone someday? Calvo, you know, you and I have known each other for years, right? <laughs> you know what an optimist I am. So uh, the only time that I had doubts is when I was standing on the street in New York on 6th Avenue, and I had to demonstrate this to a reporter just like you. Uh, and and uh, people say, you know, that was a, a, a historical moment. And I have to tell you, the only thing that I thought about was, is this thing going to work? <laughs> Well, the big day finally arrived. Marty flew from Chicago to New York to demonstrate the cell phone to a crowd of excited reporters. They held a press conference in the Hilton Hotel on Fifth Avenue, where they unveiled what we would now call today a brick. A large handheld cell phone with an aerial sticking out of the top, weighing about a kilogram. And then, the moment of truth. Marty took the cell phone and walked outside and down Fifth Avenue, followed by the reporters. And he made the first ever mobile phone call in history. And the person he decided to call was his rival at AT&T, Joe Ingle. New York, New York. I decided I was going to rub it in and I pulled out my <laughs> little address book and called Joel Ingle's number. And a second miracle is he answered the phone himself, not a secretary. And I said, hi, Joel, it's Marty Cooper. He says, hi, Marty. I said, I'm calling you from a cell phone. He says, really? I says, yes, but a real cell phone, a personal, handheld, portable cell phone. And I'm king of the hill. Silence on the other end. But he doesn't remember that call, and, and to tell you the truth, calm, I don't blame him. <laughs> how, how would you like to be famous as the guy who answered Marty's call? <laughs> Joel went silent, and not because the line had dropped, but because he knew the race was up, and Marty Cooper and Motorola had just changed the world forever. To get through all the regulations and to build the cell tower network took another 10 years before cell phones were put on sale to the public. But once they hit the shelves, as they say, the rest was history. I think it's increased my productivity a lot. Uh, I feel more organized with it. If I didn't have uh, my phone, it would be a disaster. Did you realize, Marty, when you were working on that piece of technology back in the early 70s, that you were changing the course of history? No, not, a, not at all. We knew we were right. You knew, you knew it was the right thing to do. Uh, we knew that, that someday everybody would have one, because we told a joke that, was that someday, when you were born, you would be assigned a phone number. And if you didn't answer the phone, you had died. So we knew that this was going to be a big deal, but we weren't certain that it was going to happen in our lifetime. And uh, we certainly we couldn't have imagined uh, this iPhone that I've got uh, sitting in front of me. So uh, the idea that you'd have all of this technology squeezed into a, something you could hold your hand was uh, uh, not even imaginable. Hey, how you feel? 
When Marty thinks back on the enormous impact his invention has had on the world, he doesn't think of the technological advancement, but rather the good it has done for society. The biggest impact the mobile phone has had in the world today is not in the developed countries, it's in places like Africa and India, because people have moved out of poverty mostly because of the presence of the cell phone. Hard to imagine, but the, uh, the idea that in India you could have a system where people find jobs for an hour at a time because they get messages on the cell phone that tell them I need somebody for an hour. Uh, in, in Africa, they've got a complete economic system based upon the cell phone. So is that what you're most proud of, Marty, when you think of all the achievements that the phone has accomplished to date? Is that what you're most proud of? Well, I, I have to tell you, I, if you talk about people moving out of poverty, wouldn't you suggest that that's more important than uh, people on Twitter, Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> taking selfies. Yeah, taking selfies. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> And Marty believes mobile phones haven't yet reached their full potential. He believes the next big advancement will be between phones and healthcare. You're going to find that the cell phone that you carried around with you is going to be measuring all the vital signs in your body on a continuing basis. And they're not going to wait until you get sick. They're going to know you're getting sick before you get sick, nip it in the bud, and we have the opportunity to eliminate disease. What do you think of that? I think you're right. So the idea of an annual checkup will be a thing of the past. There'll be a constant stream of data going from your phone to your GP's office to a server there. You're so smart. Oh. You figured the whole thing out. <laughs> Marty, did the invention of the mobile phone give you riches beyond your wildest dreams? Well, I have riches beyond my wildest dreams just talking to people like you, Nicole. So <laughs> when I joined Motorola, uh, I signed a little document, uh, and they gave me a dollar. And uh, for that dollar, I uh, provided them with all my intellectual property as long as I was employed by the company. And I have to tell you, that was the biggest bargain that I ever got in my life. Because Roland uh, tolerated me for 29 years and uh, let me have the freedom to make uh, many inventions and to make some contributions. So I am grateful to, to that Motorola uh, and will be the rest of my life. What age are you now, Marty? Uh, well, can't you tell by just looking at me? I'm, <laughs> I'm 91. I, I know people listening on the radio now can't see you because you're on the radio, but I'm looking at you here on a camera. Normally I'd be coming to you to do the interview, but because of the coronavirus, we are using the very technology that you helped develop and I am looking at you through a screen. You're looking at me and you look great for 91 years of age. Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> what, what is it that you want? <laughs> Life is good today. I know you've grandkids and everything, Marty. I have a great grandchild. Oh, wow. I am blessed in many ways. Marty Cooper, it was such a pleasure talking to you there in California, and thank you so much for giving me your time. Oh, it's my great pleasure, Calm, uh, any time, and, and uh, my best wishes to all of you uh, in, in Ireland, and I hope that all of us are free of this COVID virus very, very soon.
Colin Flynn was reporting there. He was talking to Marty Cooper, the inventor of the mobile phone, or cell phone as he would call it, about how he pioneered that device in the 1970s. After the break, we'll be visiting County Tipperary and hearing the story of the Templemore Miracles of 1920. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. In August of 1920, amid the trauma of the Irish War of Independence, something happened in County Tipperary that gave a lot of people hope in a dark time. It's a series of events known as the Templemore Miracles. Joining me now to talk about it is historian and author Sean Hogan. Sean, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. You've written about Templemore and the surrounding areas in your book, The Black and Tans in North Tipperary, Policing, Revolution and War, 1913 to 1922. Tell us first of all, though, about the state of affairs in Templemore in early August of 1920. How badly affected had Templemore been by the ongoing conflict at that stage? Well, Miles, uh, Templemore, in fact, hadn't been particularly involved at all in the conflict up to that stage. While uh, Salahed Beg was generally taken and starting the War of Independence in Tipperary, Templemore was a, a relatively quiet part. Uh, there was a battalion headquarters of the Northampton Regiment of the British Army. It was an RAC district headquarters. And uh, while the IRA existed in every parish, uh, the 2nd Battalion of the Mid-Tipperary Brigade of the IRA was neither well-armed nor active in early August of 1920. But then everything changed on the 16th of August. Tell us about District Inspector Wilson and what happened to him. Indeed, William Harding Wilson was a District Inspector from uh, Kings County, or Offaly, who had been, unusually I suppose for RIC officers at the time, had been promoted through the ranks to the rank of District Inspector and had been posted to Templemore in 1912. He lived just on the outskirts of the town. He was 56 year old married man with uh, four adult children and on Monday 16th of August the uh, Mid-Tipperary IRA uh, shot him dead as he was walking home for his lunch from the RIC barracks in Templemore. He, he was in fact the second RIC district inspector to be shot by the Mid-Tipperary IRA. The background really to this was uh, during the summer of 1920 there was a, a step up in the IRA campaign going beyond what had been, I suppose, widely criticised as assassination of individual policemen to attacks on RIC barracks in various locations, not just at Tipperary, but right across the country, I suppose, or the Munster area in, in particular. These were generally events that happened on Saturday nights, and uh, they were the first real act of service for hundreds of IRA volunteers were mobilised for these attacks, cutting trees to block roads and that kind of thing. And one of those volunteers, a man called Michael Small from Bursley, had been shot dead uh, early on a Sunday morning in July 1920 uh, when he was heading home to milk his cows after an aborted IRA attack in RIC barracks in Chevrolet. Uh, now, an inquest was held in the military barracks in Templemore in what seems quite extraordinary. It was attended by the Brigade OC of the IRA in the area who concluded that District Inspector Wilson had given the orders which had led to the shooting of Small. So he was obviously targeted then for assassination. Brigade OC was Jimmy Lee. He ordered his uh, assassination. So it was at that point that uh, Wilson was shot by another member of the Mid-Tipperary Brigade uh, on the 16th of August. And what were the consequences for the shooting of Wilson? Well, there was a 
fairly typical pattern of IRA outrage followed by Crown Force reprisal was well established, I think, in Tipperary in the first half of 1920. In the aftermath of previous deadly attacks, we'd already had the targeting of property of Sinn Féin figures, particularly county councillors in the town of Thurlis. We'd had the burning of cooperative creameries after an attack in Lacamoor near the Newport area. And uh, most dramatically, I suppose, really, two IRA men had been shot dead by midnight raiders who were generally believed, of course, to be Crown Forces, certainly believed by people in the area to be Crown Forces, although that was never proved. So on that particular Monday night after Wilson was shot, the military and the RAC were out of the barracks uh, patrolling around the town, but uh, some of them broke into a garage belonging to a man named George Minan, who ironically was, was a friend, in fact, of, of District Inspector Wilson, and they threatened him and, and took some 20 cans of petrol from him, with which they proceeded to burn the market house, which was also the offices of the Urban District Council located in the centre of the town, in the centre of the big wide street that, that is the characteristic, I think, of Temple Moor. And they left the town and went out to some of the surrounding areas, some of the surrounding villages, and burned three cooperative creameries at Lockmore, Castellani and Killay. Now, the burning of the buildings was, was bad enough, but uh, two soldiers also lost their lives in the fire in the market house using petrol one died in the fire. In fact, the second one, he fell out from a second-storey window and was injured as well as burned. He was removed to the barracks, but he died the following day. Now, he, he was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sidney Herbert Beatty of the Northamptonshire Regiment, quite a well-known figure. He, well, his father was well-known. He was from Fitzwilliam Square here in Dublin, and his father, Sir Andrew Beatty, was a unionist member of Dublin Corporation at the time. So the pattern of IRA outrage and Crown Force reprisal that really came to characterise the conflict was well established in Tipperary and uh, Temple War was another example of this. Okay, so that's the background to this story, and that's the the state of play in Templemore by the middle of August 1920. But in the middle of all this terror, Sean, a series of miracles occur. Tell us about James Walsh and what were the supposed miracles that he witnessed. Well, um, in in 1920, uh, James Walsh, he was a 16-year-old who was working as a farm labourer on Miss Maher's holding in a place called Corraheen in the hills overlooking Templemore town. Jimmy Walsh was one of 11 children of what had been known as was really as a labouring family from a little village called Bouladuff or Darag, uh, a few miles south of Templemore. And I think members of the Walsh family, in fact, were known to have the cure for shingles and, and things uh, like that. It would have been, I suppose, common at the time people would go to people for cures. And the Walsh family were one of those. But uh, it was immediately after what had happened in, in Templemore on 16th of August that the word went about that Jimmy Walsh w- was seeing apparitions of the Blessed Virgin and that he had some statues and they were bleeding uh, or blood was coming from the statues. Now, as you know, the Blessed Virgin had appeared you know, in other places and other times. She had appeared in Lourdes in 1858 and in Knock in 1879 and in Fatima in 1917. So uh, she had form really in terms of appearing to people. But uh, Walsh uh, was the vessel, he was. He became known as the saint, in fact, in and around Templemore. Although I suspect that was probably a bit tongue-in-cheek really that that label was applied to him. Now, there was a huge reaction from the public to these um, supposed miracles and thousands came to Templemore to see the bleeding statues. Um, this is an account by Hugh Martin. Hugh Martin was a journalist for the Manchester Guardian who was reporting on events in Ireland and he describes the scene at uh, the business, uh, Dwan's, where the statues were on display. 
At nine o'clock, one of the ground floor windows of Mr. Dwan's premises went up a few inches. It was possible by kneeling to get a glimpse of the three statues, about a foot high, on a flower-bedecked table. A score of men and women dropped on their knees. Heads were uncovered and rosaries and crucifixes came out. Some of the pilgrims had come great distances, doing the journey in stages, and must have suffered torture in the process. They would be admitted, one by one, led or dragged or carried into the presence of the sixteen-year-old who had brought all this fame to the town. I judged that Walsh really believed himself a special vessel of grace. The crowd contained a large proportion of young men who were not just there as mere onlookers, but were craving to believe. The words there of Guardian journalist Hugh Martin. Sean, how did the town cope then with the arrival of all these visitors from around the county, indeed around the country, and who took charge of the situation? Well, indeed, uh, word spread like wildfire, and there was a number of reported cures then that Walsh had touched people and prayed over them and that had miraculous cures. So thousands, as you say, of people turned up. In fact, the county inspector of the RIC estimated that there was 15,000 visitors on one day in early September to the town. It helped that the town was on, of course, a main uh, railway line, and so people could access Templemore uh, fairly easily. So what happened then was, in order to cope with that, the police had withdrawn to barracks and the military had withdrawn to barracks, and the IRA, in fact, took over uh, organising and, and running things in the town. They organised traffic, they organised a Accommodation. They organised, you know, stewarding of people as they were coming to the town because it was a huge boom, I suppose, really, for Templemore Town. It was more popular than any of the seaside towns in the month of August that particular year, I think. So it became a very major event, really, in Templemore and Ireland, really. So businesses obviously were helped by Walsh's visions, but was anybody else making money from the, from the miracles? Well, indeed, the businesses were, and many Jarvies arrived to carry people out. Walsh, you see, had, had been living out in a place outside the town, so people needed to go out to see where he was. He was staying out there, and uh, the Jarvies were needed. And, in fact, the IRA took charge, but they, as it were, taxed both the Jarvies and the people providing accommodation and the people in the restaurants and everyone else as well. So they, they certainly benefited, and they collected several thousand pounds, which went into the brigade funds for purchase of weapons. But I think there was a lot of money made, and, and money began to throw freely around the town of Templemore in a way that it had probably never done before, or probably never done since, I think. Right, let's go back to Hugh Martin of the Manchester Guardian, because there were reports of people being cured of their ailments, as you've mentioned, by young Walsh. And Martin was at Walsh's house in Corraheen and wrote about what he saw and how desperate people were to cure their loved ones. The tragedy of the affair lay not so much in human credulity as in the agony of which I was a witness. Scores of poor wretches were hauled through the miry boreens to their inevitable disappointment. The picture of one young countrywoman staggering upwards with her tortured child will be long in leaving me. More commentary there from Hugh Martin of the Manchester Guardian. Um, Sean, what was the church's reaction to these miracles? Well, obviously, I think the official church was very reluctant about the whole situation. They would have, uh, before miracles could be claimed or, or whatever, there would be very elaborate processes that uh, things would have to go through. And while obviously there was some local enthusiasm, I think, among some of the younger clergy, I think it probably emphasised the difference between what I might call the folk and the formal religion in, in Tipperary at the time. 
although Archbishop Mannix, from, who was from Australia, was visiting Ireland at the time, he actually came to Templemore, but he was the most senior cleric. The local bishops uh, weren't impressed, really, with uh, what was going on in Templemore at all, really. Now, this all didn't last very long. I think it was about four to six weeks. What brought this period, this incident, to an end? The officers of the Mid Tipperary IRA were convinced that the whole thing was a fraud of some kind and they were concerned while well, they had brought in volunteers from all over the area to manage things. They were witnessing a breakdown in the discipline of the IRA, really. IRA volunteers for the first time maybe had uh, some spare cash available that they were collecting from the pilgrims and they joined the pilgrims I think in, in drinking uh, obviously pilgrimage was, was thirsty work so they got very involved in that and the Brigade OC records in his Bureau of Military History statements that some events which brought no credit on the IRA at the time, well he doesn't actually list what the events are regrettably. So um, the IRA basically returned to action under Leahy didn't they? They did indeed, Leahy arranged an attack and uh, an RIC patrol place called Killiscahan, which was on the road, the pilgrimage route out from Templemore out to Corraheen, where Walsh was living. They ambushed a, a police patrol of four policemen, shot two of them dead. Constables Flood and Noonan uh, were shot dead. And, and that pretty well brought things back to reality in around Templemore and dented the whole pilgrimage fever. It tailed off after that. Presumably there were reprisals for that attack. Interestingly enough, not after that immediate attack, but subsequently there was there was another ambush in October when a lorry of, of soldiers was going from Templemore to Tipperary Town were ambushed in a place called Thomastown between Cashel and Tipperary Town. This was the first ambush carried out, large-scale ambush was carried out by the IRA's new active service unit or flying columns and three young soldiers from Templemore, including, interestingly enough, a young private crummy who was from Nina, had been in the Nina workhouse and had joined up. The army was killed and I'm afraid the Blessed Virgin wasn't able to save Templemore or Tipperary Town from the wrath of the young soldiers' comrades and they burned and looted oh, a significant number of properties in, in both towns. You know, that was just at the start of November 1920, which would be remembered as one of the blackest months. Terence McSweeney had just died in hunger strike and Kevin Barry was hanged in Mount Joy and sort of uh, really went into the real violence, as it were, of the War of Independence. So what had happened up to that looked like minor violence up to that point. Let's hear once again the words of Hugh Martin portraying the devastation that was wreaked on Templemore that October, thus ending the pilgrimages to the town. My next visit to Templemore was paid five weeks later, by which time the miracle boom had exhausted itself. About a third of the population had fled. From end to end, the little place was shattered, as though by a series of explosions. For a quarter of a mile, the glass in every window not heavily shuttered was broken. Altogether, more than a hundred buildings had been treated in this way. Sean, what do we know about subsequently what happened to James Walsh? Walsh was, was spirited off to um, a religious order, I think as a way of sort of ending the affair. He was taken to a religious order in Palace Kenry in, in, in Limerick and uh, may have received some education there. And in 1923, he left Ireland, in fact, and went to Australia. He obviously continued his education there and, and became a teacher, in fact, uh, out there. But uh, unfortunately for him, he was teaching in a Catholic school, but uh, some visitor from Ireland identified him as, inverted commas, the saint from back in Ireland. And he ended up being fired out of the school because of fears that he was overly religious or overly zealous in his religion. And he ended his career as a hospital porter, I think, dying in Sydney in, in 1977. 
Well, it's a fascinating story and it shows that there was a lot more going on in Ireland at that time than just the fighting in the War of Independence. Sean Hogan, thank you very much for joining us this evening to talk about the Templemore miracles. Thank you. Time now for another entry in our occasional series, Here's the Thing, where Julian Clancy investigates the stories behind objects on display in the Little Museum of Dublin. Today, he's looking at a photograph from 30 years ago, a photograph of a presidential candidate embarking on an historic campaign. Well, I know that my son Sam was impressed when he saw my picture of Mary Robinson in his history book, and I was quite chuffed about that. Connor Horgan is a well-known Dublin photographer. You might have seen his stunning portraits before, featuring the likes of Gabriel Byrne, Jean Butler, or even the late Philip Bowman. But back in 1990, Connor took a black-and-white portrait shot of a young presidential hopeful that today hangs in the Little Museum of Dublin. At the time, I don't think I saw it as being anything as important as it would subsequently be, and it's only given that importance by subsequent events. The women of Ireland, Manon Heron, who instead of rocking the cradle, rocked the system. In 1990, it had been 17 years since the last time the Irish people had voted for a president. The previous six presidents had all been men. Ireland had changed hugely in that time, and it was looking for something new. Mary Robinson represented that new Ireland. But still, at the time, no one thought she would win. None of us, including Mary Robinson, thought for a second that she was going to get elected. There was absolutely no question of that happening. Connor knew of Mary Robinson, and more importantly, her work, on issues like divorce, abortion, and the destruction of Burr Key. So he was more than happy to lend his support to the campaign. But the reason why no one thought that she would win was because of the competition. Mary Robinson was going up against Fianna Fáil's nomination, Brian Lenhan. He was the Den Tánachta and Minister for Foreign Affairs, and Fianna Fáil had won every single presidential election since the process began. And there was also another problem. It would not be unkind or unfair to say that whatever public perception there was of Mary Robinson at the time was that she was, you know, maybe a bit of a boffin, you know. Obviously had a brain the size of a small planet and had put it to very good use and the aid of very good causes, but was not necessarily the warmest human being that you might come across. It turns out that she actually is warm and has all of those great human qualities. Well, let's bring up the image here. Tell me a little bit about what we're looking at. Well, this is uh, the black and white photograph of Mary Robinson, which was would have been her main election poster. She's wearing a kind of a shawl collar, a um, bit of makeup. She's looking directly down the camera. There's a kind of, you can see a bit of steel in the eyes, which was always there and mark of the very clear and sharp intellect that's behind those eyes. But there's also a bit of warmth and the, the smile is not huge, but it's sincere. Connor took Mary outside the studio to capture some other photographs that were used in the campaign. He managed to capture a side to the future president that few had seen before. When I took her out later on and took her into Stephen's Green and had her talking to these old duffers sitting in the sun on the park benches, she charmed the pants off them. And it was just a wonderful thing to see. And you could see her actually as the campaign developed easing into that side of herself. 
Connor's photographs are special. They're intimate, and even though you're looking at a stranger, you somehow feel closer to the subject. Even if they're a Hollywood actor, a Broadway dancer, or even a presidential hopeful. So much of what happens between me and somebody when I'm taking their picture is it's a moment of real intimacy. And this connection that happens between me and the, and the sitter, if that just manages to distract them from that big hunk of metal and glass to, that's in front of my right eye long enough that the real them comes out, mm. we only need them for a moment. The iconic photograph that Connor took that day went on to be used in billboards, campaign posters and flyers distributed right across the country for the six-month campaign. As it turned out, even the choice of background in the shot seemed to hint at the drama that was about to come. I would have picked this kind of cloudy canvas background totally instinctively. There was not necessarily a kind of feeling of, and then we put this because it means that, but it just, because it felt right. And when you look at it now, it does feel right. And it has a sense of a kind of a black and white version of a dramatic sky. And dramatic skies can kind of say destiny. If all that sounds dramatic, that's because the 1990 election was one of the most dramatic elections of our time. There was that damning audio tape that buried Brian Lennon in a political scandal. The searing attack from Podrick Flynn on Mary Robinson's family values, as well as this huge mobilisation of female voters. It all climaxed with a win. A win that changed the country forever. Knowing what I know now, I'm very proud to have been involved in that campaign. It ended up being a much bigger deal than any of us thought that it would be. I'm glad that I was there. I'm glad I was part of it. I was elected by men and women of all parties and none by many with great moral courage, who stepped out from the faded flags of the Civil War and voted for a new Ireland, and above all, by the women of Ireland. Julian Clancy was reporting there. He was talking to Conor Horgan about Mary Robinson's presidential campaign in 1990. Here's the Thing is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. After the break, we'll be hearing about the history of women's soccer in Ireland. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. 50 years ago today, a match was played between Dundalk Ladies Football Club and the Manchester Corinthian Nomads, an English women's football team. As we'll hear, the game was notable in uh, the history of the sport. Joining me now to talk about it is librarian Helena Byrne, who's been researching the history of women's football in Ireland. Helena, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Tell us, first of all, why was this game so significant? Well, this game was really significant in the history of women's football because Dundalk ladies, along with the Corinthians, were founding members of the Women's Football Association in London in 1969. And Dundalk, the team, was established in 1968, so just the year before that, by Kevin and Nan Gaynor. And they were the only club from outside England out of the 44 founding members. And this was also their first match that they'd played in Britain as well. So they were very excited from when they joined the Women's Football Association to play against a British team across the water. Now, the English Football Association, the game was played in England. The English Football Association had a ban, apparently, on women's games being played on FA-affiliated grounds. So where did the match actually take place? 
Well, the match took place, it was played in North Wales, but on the Prestaton Raceway because the FA ban, which was implemented in 1921, was still in place by 1970. And um, when the FA put in that ban on affiliated grounds, they asked other footballing organisations to also implement a similar ban. And many other football associations did that. But the governing body, FIFA, in 1971, brought in uh, recognised women's football and made men's governing bodies also recognise women's football. Scotland was probably the only governing body that dragged their heels a bit on it, but if then did agree to recognise women's football. And so then after 71, we started to see more women's games taking place in affiliated football grounds. So especially some of the major, what are now premiership clubs. So this is an international, club international game between an English team and Irish team played in Wales. What what was the scoreline? Yeah. How did the game actually go? Well, there seems to be a bit of disagreement about this. Um, so a scrapbook from one of the former players from the Corinthians has the score down as 8-1, but a match report in a local newspaper, the Argos, has the score down as 7-1. And some players from the Dundalk side remember the score as being 7-1. But the, the Corinthians, they were quite an attacking side, so it's possible that they may have scored a disallowed goal, and that's where the extra goal is coming from. So it's a bit disputed, but I would say it's 7-1 was the final score. Now, it's one goal for Dundalk, but apparently it was a cracker. It was spectacular. Oh, it was fantastic. Apparently it was scored from the halfway line and it was scored by Paula Gorham, who went on to play for Ireland 11 times as well and uh, has scored many fantastic goals like that as well. And uh, also, I think the game then led to subsequently another international game because uh, uh, Prestatton, in Wales got interested in the notion of playing Dundalk. Yeah, so the manager at the time, Kevin Gaynor, was a prolific uh, letter writer and developed lots of friendships with other footballing clubs and developed a friendship with Prestatton. And they actually played two games. So the first match was held in April 1971. Prestatton came to Dundalk and they played in Oriel Park. And then a few months later, then they travelled over to Wales again and played Prestatton. And they actually had a hand in Prestatton affiliating to the Women's Football Association. Now, I wouldn't like to give the impression that women's football in Ireland or indeed in England only goes back 50 years because you've been doing a lot of research. I know other people who've been doing a lot of research. The research has been pooled. Tell us what you found out about women and football in the late 1800s, for example. Yeah, so there's still been very little research into the history of women's soccer in Ireland. But there is a growing community of independent researchers looking into this subject across Europe, especially in Britain as well. And soccer really is a global game and Irish teams did travel quite a lot, often to places in Scotland and Northern England. So a group of us have come together, so myself and Martin Moore and Stuart Gibbs and Michael Keelty and Jared Farrell, we set up this project called uh, Mapping Irish Football. So it's just an online forum where we're asking people who have come across any citations to women and football of any code Irish football but it could be maybe a match that took place in England or there's even one citation we've gotten from a match in New York and we're just asking people to put in all the references from any time period up until 1973 when the Women's Football Association was founded and uh, so far we've had quite a number of nominations and the dates range back from the late 1800s up until 1973 and they cover most codes of football except for we haven't had any rugby ones yet so that's one we're looking out for. So in the late 1800s, we have some references to when the British ladies did a tour of Ireland. So they travelled in 
1895, the British ladies went to Belfast and did a, a show match. And uh, we think, we're not sure exactly, but we think it was against a men's team. And then a year later, they did another tour of Ireland and they went to Dublin and Drogheda and Dundalk in 1896. And one of the researchers, Martin Moore, has uncovered a citation to a match that took place in Lurgan in June 1896. And it was a women's v men match. And this is possibly the first record of an Irish woman playing the sport that's been rec recorded in the newspapers. Obviously, like with a lot of women's hobbies and uh, activities in life, it's not always recorded in the newspapers as much as the men's. Now, in 1927, I think there was a, a match, I suppose you'd call it a de facto international between an Irish women's club and a, and a Scottish club. So the, the game must have been thriving or must have been going fairly well. Women's game must have been going fairly well in, in both countries at that stage. Yeah, so in 1927, a team called Rudder Glen from Scotland played a series of friendly matches against Edinburgh Soccer Girls in Belfast, Dundalk, uh, Dublin and Cork, and with a match again on the return back in Dublin against a local side. So we don't know too much about this team, but the Evening Herald has uh, dubbed them the First Lady Soccer Team. So if they're the first, we don't know, but that's what they've called them. There's uh, a lot of firsts recorded in the newspapers over time that aren't true first. But the Evening Herald is quite good. It's got a team photo and it has all the names of the players. Whereas the Irish Times did carry a report of the match, but they didn't uh, give much information into the team except for with a reference to Miss Clark's penalty shot. But from Scottish newspapers, we can also see that after this match, there was a follow-up tour where several Irish women traveled to Scotland to play a series of Ireland v Scotland matches in 27 and 28. But then in Ireland, at least, the activity seems to have died down in the 1930s. What happened? Yeah, so there still needs to be um, significant research done into this. But we know for certain that the 1935 Conditions of Employment Act, which was passed, led to the restriction of women's employment. And in the 1937, then we had the new Irish Constitution, which Article 42.1 states that a woman's place is in the home. So with all these kind of conservative legislation coming in and women's workplace activities being restricted, it must have been very difficult to form things like soccer teams because you need a lot of people. You need um, at least 22 people to be able to play a full match. But this is an area that really needs to be explored. So some of the long-standing sports that continue throughout history, um, so for camogie, golf, tennis and hockey, there still needs to be research in them to see did this legislation have any impact on those sports as well, whereas those sports would have been carried out by the upper classes and middle classes, so maybe didn't have as much impact as sports like soccer. Now, after that Dundalk-Corinthians match, uh, how long did it take for international competitive matches then to take off, competitive matches involving Ireland to take off? Yeah, so despite the fact that women's football was recognised by FIFA in 1971, it wasn't until 1982 that UEFA established a competition called uh, the Competition for National Representative Women's Teams. So when this was first called, 16 teams entered the competition that ran over two years. And they were divided initially into four groups based on geographic region. And the winner of each group progressed onto the quarterfinals. So the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland were in the same group as Scotland and England. And uh, needless to say, England was the biggest and more developed side, so they won the group. And the same group competed for a place in the second and third competitions, which were held in 1984 and 1987. The fourth competition ran from 1989 to 1991, but they'd kind of changed the structure of the competition and rebranded it as the first European Championship for Women. 
and this kind of follows the same similar format to what the contemporary uh, European Championships are. So, but this time the groups were for qualification changed, and so Ireland were Republic of Ireland were in a new group with the Netherlands and Northern Ireland uh, playing in the group stages. Now you've done a lot of work, a lot of research on the history of women's football in Ireland and, and as you mentioned others are doing uh, research as well but I, I gather the, that all of this research is still in its infancy, there are lots and lots of gaps. Definitely and I think one of the major gaps is, is like as mentioned before with most parts of women's lives it doesn't always get recorded in the newspapers or in the history books most of the research has to be done through oral history and as we're getting on now the living memory of the early stages of women's football is at risk so it really needs a big national oral history project something similar to what happened with the GA oral history project to really gather all the memories and also to collect any memorabilia that might be still around so I'm sure a number of people have got football programs or posters from some of the matches that were held in the 60s and 70s which would be invaluable for future research into the history of the game. Now I think you'd planned a 50th anniversary event with uh, players from both teams coming together but that's obviously had to be put on hold are you hoping that you'll be able to go ahead with that later in the year yes uh, definitely so we uh, were planning to host an event at the county museum dundalk because we've been in touch with some of the players from manchester and they're really keen to meet the dundalk team again but um i think we'll probably err on the side of caution and just see how the health situation develops and it'll possibly probably be next year before we can host an event uh, there wouldn't be an over 70s game involved in any of this, uh, I presume, no? Well, I was looking into maybe using um, Sabutio to, uh, you know, because that's kind of a, no chance of injuries from that unless you get a finger sprain. But because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're still very competitive teams. It doesn't matter, um, you know, how old they are. But uh, so I think Sabutio might be the or some sort of form of table football might be the safest option. Helena, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Keep up the good work there with the research into the history of the women's game in Ireland. That's uh, Helena Byrne talking about that match between Dundalk Ladies Football Club and the Manchester Corinthians, a hugely significant game when it came to the development of international women's football. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Mark Manning. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>